Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I am a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And 5,837 kilometers away in Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Listeners, thanks for joining us today. When Bale and I were both on the faculty of Clarkson University, we would have lots of interesting conversations about how the world is changing, and specifically about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We do this over coffee or lunch as time allowed. And about two years ago, I moved to Germany, and last year, Bela retired. Um, but Bela had this idea to continue these conversations in the form of a podcast, um, inviting listeners like you to, to, to listen in and uh, maybe even contribute a bit. I thought this was a horrible idea. I thought, Bela, I, I'm not a podcast guy. I don't like the sound of my voice recorded, blah, blah, blah. But Bela, you are right as usual, and we've had a great time so far. Hey, thanks, Mike. Uh, before we dive into today's interview with Abe, uh, I just wanted to remind our listeners that one of the key elements of this podcast is to interview business founders we can all identify with. We've had a broad spectrum of people on the show, from people who roast coffee, to software developers, to business consultants, to cafe and restaurant owners. We're not trying to discuss how to start the next Facebook or Google. What we want to do is bring you stories that you can hopefully identify with and will inspire you and to help you realize and say, hey, I can do that, and then take the first steps to start your business journey. This week's guest is Abraham Kmark, a co-founder of True Made F Foods, a startup that makes healthy alternatives to condiments such as ketchup and barbecue sauce. It's an interesting and inspirational story of persistence and learning by doing. This really is a great interview, Bela. But before we begin, uh, let's take a second to remind our listeners that our podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. This is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their nationally recognized attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startup businesses. Phillips Lytle is my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. So we're truly excited to have Phillips Lytle as our show sponsor. You and I both know, Bela, that they think like entrepreneurs, taking a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. So if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, Bela and I confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? So for more information, contact Rich Honan, who is a Phillips Lytle partner. If you are an old-school person like Mike and I, you can give Rich a call at 518-618-1225. Or, if you are of the generation that prefers online communication, you can reach Rich directly from his firm's website at philipslytle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E dot com. And... It'll be great for us if you let Rich know that you heard about Philip Lytle from listening to the Unconventional Path podcast. All right, with that said, let's jump right into today's interview with Abe Kmark. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm here with Abe Kmark. He is the founder of True Made Foods. Welcome to the show, Abe. Hey, thanks for having me. I yeah, appreciate it. My pleasure. 
So if you're at a social event and uh, someone comes up to you and they introduce themselves to you and then they ask you the question, hey, Abe, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Uh, I say I sell ketchup. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, just kidding. I, I actually usually say I have a, a food startup and then sometimes I'll, I'll qualify that and say I have a healthy food startup or a health food startup. Uh, meaning that, you know, I have a, I started a food company or in the startup phase and we, uh, we make healthier versions of conventional foods that are out there. Um, we like to say that we turn junk food into superfood. Oh, okay. So, uh, what type of products do you have right now? So we started with a ketchup barbecue sauce and sriracha. And what we do, those, all those three products are probably, most people don't realize, but they're probably the worst things in your refrigerator when it comes to sugar per ounce. Um, probably the most sugar-dense products out there. You know, most barbecue sauces have more sugar than soda. Um, ketchup has more sugar than ice cream. Sriracha, the Hoi Fung Sriracha has more sugar than ketchup. Um, these are like terribly sugar-loaded products that are just uh, killing people's diets. And uh, one of the big problems is kids eat the majority of it, like ketchup, for example. Um, so what we do is we take out the sugar and the corn syrup and we add veggies instead. We use veggies as a natural sweetener. Uh, nat real veggies, pureed, so whole, minimally processed. And uh, really, it tastes amazing. Like You don't even know the sugar is not there. And we have these great, amazing products, ketchup and barbecue sauce, sriracha, that taste like uh, the conventional stuff that you're used to. Kids don't know the difference. Grown-up kids don't know the difference. And you're, uh, you're eating all these extra veggies instead of eating all that sugar. Yeah, wow. So how long ago did you start this, Abe? <clears throat> we technically launched it in about 2015. Um, really didn't start to get traction and really start to do well until about 2017, 2018. 2018 was really when things started to take off for us. Oh, great. And so what was sort of your motivation for do, doing something like this? Well, I always feel like you always hear about the idea. Um, and I'll start with that because, you know, but <clears throat> really every startup or every entrepreneur has kind of two motivations behind them. There's always like the idea, but the, everybody has ideas for great startups or they think they do. Um, really pushing, there's always usually some type of life event that pushes somebody to take that next leap. Um, so <clears throat> the idea for the startup came from the fact that um, I, as a father of four, I hated ketchup. I had these lofty ambitions as a uh, young father, thinking that um, my kids would never eat ketchup, that we'd be a ketchup-free household because I didn't want them pouring that red corn syrup all over their food. And I lost that battle big time. Like uh, my kids had ketchup. We couldn't get them to eat anything else. I tried to get them to eat mustard, stuff like that, and it was always ketchup. Um, so I was frustrated with that. Um, I was also frustrated with barbecue and the state of what, what barbecue has become because we're big barbecue fans. We go out to barbecue all the time. We barbecue, we smoke, and we grill at home. And um, But barbecue sauces have just become nothing but sugar, um, which really defeats the entire purpose of barbecue because it covers up all the flavor of anything that you're working on. Um, and that's been driving me nuts too. Like you can't eat the barbecue sauce at most restaurants because it's literally just sugar. Um, and anything you buy out there is sugar. Um, on most of the, the, even the natural and organic stuff is all loaded with sugar. Um, and like I said, it typically has more sugar than a soda, um, ounce per ounce. So that, that was driving me nuts. And <clears throat> I was very, you know, I'm very anti-sugar, very focused on health. And, um, somebody gave me the idea of putting, veggies in a ketchup. Somebody uh, said his wife had been trying to hide vegetables in his food. So she was just like I do with my kids. 
Um, and they had been blending, trying different types of things. And, you know, they weren't very good cooks, but they were trying different things. And uh, when, they, when they, you gave me the idea of putting veggies in ketchup, I <clears throat> like immediately the light bulb went off because I was like, you know what? I grew up um, learning how to make pasta sauces at a very young age with my mom, um, Italian mother, like cooking in the kitchen constantly. I was the oldest child, so I was always helping. And my dad wasn't around a lot, so I was always helping out in the kitchen, stuff like that. And we always use carrots as a natural sweetener in the pasta sauce. And my mom always said that lazy Italians use sugar. And so we never had sugar, always used veggies. And I'd kind of carried that over to a lot of my other cooking styles, but I never thought about using it in condiments. And so once somebody put ketchup and veggies together, I was like, oh, of course, it's definitely going to work because um, I do it with pasta sauce. So <clears throat> that was kind of the idea that like drove me to do this, um, to kind of the life event that drove me to do this, uh, make this crazy jump. Um, cause you have to be a little insane to do this. Um, especially at my age with kids, uh, it was that I was working for a charity here in Washington, DC. Um, they had hired me as an entrepreneur to help them launch products. We were doing this coffee. It was an awful, awesome social impact coffee from Uganda. And I was like all about it cause it was great cause I was launching this product, really excited, um, really doing some good. And then the charity went bankrupt, um, right as my stuff was really working, the coffee was really starting to take off and they fired me. Um, so that kind of put me in a position and a kind of a mindset where I was like, you know, screw the world, screw everybody. I'm going to do my own thing. And, um, so that kind of gave me the impetus and the, that little bit of uh, headstrong craziness that you need to get started at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Is there uh is there any entrepreneurship in your family? <clears throat> uh, no, definitely not. I think my dad is probably the most unentrepreneurial person I know. Um, my wife is definitely very unentrepreneurial. Um, I don't know where I got it from, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, both my grandfathers were, you know, very depression era um, people. So, you know, they were obviously very risk averse from that stuff. They were like all about, you know, get a steady government job, trying to find something that has a pension. Um, I was in the military for a long time. I was eight and a half years in the Navy, um, you know, and I got out and nobody thought that that was a good idea because why are you giving up such a great pension? Um, and, uh, yeah, no, so really, I don't know where I, where I got it from possibly, you know, just the fact that I grew up, I grew up in a few different places. Um, my parents kind of let me do, I was definitely not, um, a helicopter child parents. I did not have helicopter parents. They were very much, uh, free range. Like, I don't think they knew where I was 90% of the time. So, um, that probably led to kind of a a level of, uh, self-sufficiency that's kind of driven me on this path. Um, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And, uh, so when you started this, uh, a number of years ago, um, talk to me about the, you know, the first six months or so, what was that like? Uh, how much money did you raise? If any sort of, what were you doing? Uh, the first six months, uh, are interesting. It's first six months are always, you're still kind of like in a honeymoon period. Um, if you have the product and things are launching and stuff like that, um, cause it's, everything's bright, everything's new. The concept is great and you're just pitching the idea really. So there's no, um, any metrics that you get are good most of the time because you just started. Um, so the way we started, I knew I wouldn't, uh, dedicate my time full time to this. If I, if I couldn't de-risk it a little bit and have something force me to do it full time. So what the way I launched this was, um, 
a bunch of accelerators were starting at the time, you know, about four years ago, five years ago, four years ago, that uh, were starting to focus on food. People really starting to take food startups a lot more seriously, and they were trying to like replicate what was happening in tech with food. And uh, uh, so a new one popped up called FoodX in New York City. Um, I immediately applied for it because we had this idea, and I just knew that if I didn't have something like this forcing me to do it, um, I, you know, the the um, the responsibilities of like family life and the pull of like having needing to get a salary um, for the family and things like that would probably drive me away from it. So, and I needed some validation early on too and help as well. Um, so the accelerator made a made a big difference. We lucky we got in. Um, they were a brand new accelerator. They didn't really know what they were doing, which was why I was able to get in. Because uh, <laughs> really they shouldn't have. We were just uh, at the time when we launched Tremade Foods, we didn't have anything but an idea. Um, and we, we, we got in that gave us like $50,000 in, in seed funds, which was, you know, big de-risk for me because I didn't have to, you know, use all my money, um, to help get this started. And, um, you know, it just proved that somebody was there who really, there's, there's a lot to say for having somebody just say that they believe in you and they believe in your idea. Um, and, uh, the fact that then, Throughout the process of the accelerator, you were pitching it every week. At least our accelerator, we did a pitch every week to a panel of investors or potential investors or people pretending to be investors so that you were constantly being judged and having to really justify your idea over and over again. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and you're constantly getting feedback. Right, exactly, which was like so important. Um, and so that was a key point. And then the thing that really kind of pushed me over is, um, you know, we – we launched the products at the fancy food show for the first time. So there's a big show in New York city. Um, they do it twice a year, uh, winter in January in San Francisco and then the summer in, in June in uh, at the end of June in New York city and uh, fancy food show. It's usually, it's a huge show, but it's mostly all craft artisan um, specialty food startups. Um, and so we, I, we got a booth there. You know, there's like 5,000 exhibitors, got a great location, totally lucked out. And we we walked in having never sold a product before, having just developed it, having graduated out of the accelerator, and walked out of the show with ten thousand dollars in POs and a ton of interest. And what was really exciting was we were getting all this interest. And at the time, um, I should I shouldn't have gotten too excited about it looking back, but um, at the time we got all this interest from like big name. Uh, grocery stores like HEB and Walmart and Target were coming up to us and, and asking about the product and stuff like that and getting excited about it. And so that kind of really gave me the impetus to really do more with this. And after that, I was like, okay, we are on something big. I'm going to just full time on this, drive in, do nothing but true made foods all year round, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and so that really just caused me to dive in uh, big time and to try to start raising money as well. So, yeah. So, uh, uh, did you end up uh, raising money? Yes. Yeah. We've had to raise, um, food startups are deceivingly, um, difficult to start expensive wise. There's a lot of money behind it. You can bootstrap it for a while yourself. Um, but if you want to grow fast and get to the point where you could potentially pay yourself a salary, you really need to raise uh, money. Um, and so we started raising angel investments, you know, within like, uh, six, seven months, yeah, about six months of starting. And then, you know, just have constant, once you start raising money, you kind of, you can't stop. You kind of have to keep, stay on that train. It's like getting on heroin, I guess, like just 
you know, yeah. you, you just get addicted. You just have to keep going because you're on that growth path. Then. Um, and if you're not hitting that growth path, you got to even raise even more money, you know, things like this. So, um, that was a, you know, that was an eye opening type of, um, experience having to really start raise money and pitch angels and then pitch VCs and figure out the landscape and figure out what kind of metrics we really had to do. Yeah. Um, and the key is always trying to find the right investors who know your space and are interested in your space and match up with and have the same type of expectations that you do. Um, and, and that's the key. Um, so yeah, we're, we're constantly raising money. We're always going to have to raise money um, probably for the next couple of years, and then we'll hopefully be break-even within a few years. So that's that's the goal right now. Yeah, that sounds great. So how much money, how much capital have you guys raised approximately? Uh, we've raised uh, just over $3 million over four years. Oh, okay. So. That's, a, that's a nice amount. Very good. Yeah, yeah. It's now, been coming in small chunks, though, mostly. Yeah. And now are you... Uh, a manufacturer or do you have other people make this stuff for you on a contract basis? That's one of the reasons I got into food in general is because I, when I started working on this coffee for the charity, like I realized, um, to be in food, you, there's this entire ecosystem in the United States where that to support kind of food entrepreneurs or food startups where there's what they call co-mans or co-packers, uh, co-manufacturers who will make the product for you. Um, you know, brokers who help you sell it, um, outsource sales teams, um, you know, distributors who will distribute it for it. There's three PLs, third party logistics providers that, you know, can warehouse and ship it for you. Um, so there's a lot of these things that you can turn from these fixed costs into variable costs, which really helps from a startup standpoint, right? Um, now there, what are, you learn once you're doing this is that this is no turnkey system and it's not as easy as you would imagine because nobody really does their job well. You have to stay on top of the co-man. Co-man, <clears throat> the co-packers, nobody likes working with the early stage startups that have no sales yet because everybody wants you to have volume. It's like this. Um, same with the, the warehouses and logistics providers. They really want to see more volume. They want to be able to make money off you, right? So they're, they... Um, so you have to convince them to take you on early on and then, you know, grow with them and deal with that. Um, <clears throat> but there is this entire ecosystem out there that really helps you. That's why you see a lot of food startups out there, too, is because you can find a co-man. You can help launch, you know, develop and launch a product. You don't have to own your warehouse. You don't have to own your facility anymore. Um, you know, there's still some advantage to doing that. I do know some startups that do own their own facility, uh, you know, like Cleveland Kraut, and they make sauerkraut out of Cleveland. And uh, they own their own location in their own place like that because they have a very unique product that they want to, uh, you know, that uh, nobody else could make. So they needed to have their own facility. Um, and then you have like a Bonza pasta, the chickpea pasta. They eventually had to get their own facility too because they're – the thing and their idea was so new, it was very difficult, again, to find somebody to make it for them. Um, but for most food startups, you can find somebody to do it for to do it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, when I think of uh, uh, the food shopping experience, I, I think of, you know, walking down the aisle uh, at my local uh, grocer, uh, which is a pretty large grocery store. And, you know, there's half an aisle that's all ketchup <laughs> and there's got to be 30 different brands there. So it's got to be really challenging for, for someone new to kind of, you know, elbow their way into that marketplace. So what, what are the types of things that you've done to sort of, you know, elbow in and build your brand and, and get that distinctive nature so that 
people will want to buy your product. Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, and you know, actually, ketchup is one of the easier ones in some ways because there's not as much competition. If you think about it, it's mainly dominated by private label and Heinz. Um, <clears throat> there's not you don't you don't see as many you know startup ketchups uh, out there. But uh, you know, in some of the other categories like beverage or um, salty snacks or uh, beef jerky. Oh my God, there's like a new startup every five seconds, and so there's like everything is out there. Like it's over, almost overwhelming for the consumer. Um, so what, what we learned, we, we made a lot of mistakes early on, a lot of mistakes. Um, number one is when you're starting, um, your label and your packaging is just about everything, everything in that store. Um, and you really need to understand, you know, you have less than a second to get your, um, your customer's attention in the store. And, so your packaging needs to differentiate you and tell the consumer what you are, you know, in less than a second and why you're better. So you have less than a second to tell the consumer what you are and why you're better. Um, so very important, big mistake that a lot of brands do early on is they put their brand, like their logo really big on that. And then the customer doesn't really even know what the, the food package is. And that's always a problem. Um, what we made a mistake of doing early on is we had very pretty, kind of very clean, white, artistic, artistically drawn uh, labels that just looked like expensive ketchup bottles. Um, and they didn't say why we were different. Or, and that was a massive failure. Um, so, you know, we almost went under because of that. Um, the company almost failed basically because of those labels. Um, so we had, you know, and we basically changed the labels almost every single year since then. And we're about to launch a whole new label design in 2020, which hopefully knock on wood will be our last um, kind of at least last like major label change. Um, so you got to test your labels, um, take them into the store, test them out. Um, testing them online is great. I'd recommend all food startups to start online, start on Amazon early on. Uh, the label doesn't make a difference on Amazon because and on digital, um, something that works really well you know, on a website or on Amazon is not going to, may not work very well in the store from a label or packaging standpoint. But the key is to think about the kind of traffic that you're driving and why people are buying it. Cause at least on digital or with Amazon, if people are clicking on certain keywords or using certain keywords and then purchasing to find and then purchase your product, those are the type of keywords you want to use on your packaging when you put it on store. Right? So if, you know, if you're a keto brownie and, um, you know, everybody who finds you is uh, searching keto desserts or keto brown, you know, you better make sure that keto is huge on your package when you get to the store, um, you know, or vegan or plant-based or whatever it is that you are using to differentiate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, that sounds really interesting. Um, so one of the things I hear you say is that in, in this business, uh, there's relatively low startup cost because we have all these uh, uh, contract manufacturers, people who take care of distribution and inventory management, et cetera. Uh, you can sell stuff on Amazon. Uh, so at least to sort of get going and, and you know, see, see mm -hmm. how it sort of runs. And there's other, other online outlets as well. Um, but at some point in time, you got to end up on the grocery store shelf. And yep. um, so what's the process like to get into a big national grocer? Yeah, I mean, well, two things real quick. I mean, it's always good to start on Amazon first, but people need to realize that um, 
for most businesses, Amazon is not a solution. It's not a long-term solution. It's a uh, it's very difficult to scale your business on Amazon. Very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, online and a lot of new startups that have been gone direct to consumer have discovered this the hard way. Um, so eventually, yeah, I mean, grocery is not going away. Um, so, and I think that's we've seen that from Amazon's purchase of Whole Food. Now, Amazon launching retail stores itself. Um, but yeah, the dealing with the grocery stores is um, it's a learning process. It is difficult, um, but you need uh, once you learn to speak the language and you learn how things work, um, it can be an easy thing to figure out. Um, the the challenge challenges is you are dealing with person you're dealing with category buyers who have their own personalities and have their own likes and dislikes and things like this and you know um there are you know they don't work on your timeline either they have their own timelines and their timelines can go out the window at different times too so it's very hard to plan around it um so you need to keep a, a clear mind on that um it's also very hard to you know deliver your strategy because you could think oh you know what i'm going to go into whole foods first and you know go natural and then i'm going to you know drive into my local conventional retailer x y and z all kinds of things can happen like uh, a lot of that strategy of going natural first has kind of gone out the window because the way whole foods has become whole foods is now more sometimes more difficult to deal with or to get into than a lot of these um even something like a safeway uh so and the other thing is to realize that a lot of these grocery stores will take you in or they'll take almost any new product in if you pay the full slotting fees. So there's always a slotting fee, some type, a free fill case or full on um, just a charge, you know, like $40 per SKU per store. Um, and they're going to charge you that. And if you pay that money, it de-risks it for them. So they put you in. And if you don't perform within a year, they'll kick you out. So you're taking that big risk and you're betting, you know, thousands of dollars that you're going to be able to stay on shelves. We made the, yeah. And you'll be surprised. Like when I first started, you know, some conventional chains, some big ones like took us on and they were the wrong types of stores to go into first. And we hadn't figured out our shelf strategy um, early on and we went too fast. And again, this almost killed us. Um, We didn't figure these things out and we, uh, we really, and we ended up getting kicked out of some of our earliest stores. And, you know, we had to revamp and it hit our sales and it made our sales look flat in the second year, et cetera. So, um, yeah, very important that you figure out and you get into the right stores um, early on. And uh, don't get too aggressive about going into um, the wrong stores. And also stay flexible because all kinds of crazy things can happen. Like we were supposed to get into a great natural store this past year. And we, the, the order was in everything and then the buyer got fired. So the person working at the store who was our liaison got fired. Everything he was doing was put on hold. And so now we're still on hold. I have no idea what's going to happen if we're ever going to get into that store. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, one of the things that is wonderful about this podcast is I've talked to, I think you're the 66th or 67th guest, something like that. Um, and, uh, one of the things that's becoming clearer and clearer is that every industry has its subtleties. You know, there's common things across all industries, uh, but there are each industry has its subtleties. Uh, like you were talking about these slotting fees and, and sort of, you know, the process for getting on the shelf, uh, having a branding strategy that works and making sure you're in the right types of retail outlets. Uh, 
when, when an entrepreneur doesn't have a background in that industry, other than, you know, learning the hard way and making some mistakes along the way, uh, have you brought people into your organization who have been from the industry and, and have helped you or maybe people on your board? How did you address that? Yeah, I mean, since the very beginning, I've been trying to find and bring in these people. Um, one of the challenges with food is it's a very one of the challenges, one of the benefits of, food, of being a food startup is that um, there is no kind of Silicon Valley for food. Right. So um, there's food companies. They're in randomly in big cities all over the America. Um, and for, same with food startups. They're in different big cities all over America. Um, try to find the, your network in the city or the metro market that you're in. Um, find the, don't find big food companies. Try to find the food startup startups, and you know make friends with them. If you're someplace like Boulder, Colorado, you're going to be in luck because there's a lot more of them. Um, that's one area. Austin, Texas has a lot too. Um, DC, though, we, even though like there's like we have um, the mess hall and uh, Union Kitchen, which create, uh, which are kind of uh, food incubators, uh, which can help you out a lot. Uh, Chicago has a hatchery, uh, which is a food incubator there, and they can help out a lot. So reach out and find those types of locations and uh, you know groups and networks and groups of people who are probably you know just a few years ahead of you. Um, from starting the company, and they are going to be the most help in helping you get started and telling you what to do, things like that. Yeah, great, great, great advice. Is there a is there like a CEO or founders organization uh, in the region where you're at that that people you could reach out to and be part of? Um, no, not really in my region. Well, you know, I've been part of Union Kitchen and part of that network, which is a Union Kitchen is a. a food incubator here in the DC market. They have three locations in Washington, DC um, that incubate uh, young food companies and and then they have an accelerator program too. Um, Kind of just been an affiliate and networked with them to try to stay um, in the loop and help out other people and, you know, get some help when I can. Um, I also, there's a company called Circle Up. Um, This is more national, very big CPG focused uh, level investor company. They used to be a, a, a fundraising platform for CPG, consumer product goods. Um, and now they're more private equity, but they have uh, like a financing arm and everything. And if you become a member, of the, if you start using their financing, you get into their, they're trying to create like this investor, this um, Google groups for CEOs. And uh, so that's a great source because you can just ping out and, uh, get, and get questions answered, things like that. Um, and then, uh, what's great too, is like the trade shows that we go to, there's a few core trade shows and then the distributor trade shows that everybody's going to. And, you know, I have a few other startup friends that I always see at these trade shows. And one of the best benefits of going to these trade shows is getting to hang out with the other, uh, startup founders and, and, you know, one, you know, get some emotional support cause we're all going to complain about stuff and, uh, to people who actually understand what we're complaining about. And then, um, but also like getting some advice and figuring out what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the, one of the things that always talk about with, with startup companies is, you know, sort of getting their product out early, getting customer feedback early. And uh, Mm -hmm. how did you do that? Particularly with getting the recipes, right? I mean, this is, this is really challenging because it's people's taste. So how did, how did you tackle that problem? Yeah, that's a that's a very difficult with food. I mean, so there's a lot of different ways to do that with food. We did it through the accelerator. Um, we were uh, I had a co-founder early on. He's not with the company anymore. Um, he was uh, 
but I, you know, one to have a co-founder is very key. I think unless they're like my co-founder and not helpful, um, then it's usually more of a drag, um, slowed us, slowed us down for a couple of years, but the, I, you know, tr figuring out a way to do that, like the, um, the accelerator helped us test the products on people and consumers, and you can find other ways to do that without that. You don't need an accelerator. I think actually accelerator is not necessary in any way for, for that part. Um, most people launch at farmer's markets, you know, getting the product out there at a farmer's market and really testing and um, getting people's reactions. I would just be wary because um, when you do something at a farmer's market, uh, if you have a new specialty product, a new kind of food, People, you're just you're going to get overly positive reactions all the time because the people who are going to farmers markets are looking for cool, new, interesting kind of handcrafted foods and um, things like this. So they're they're much more open to the idea. And because they're interested in buying something at a farmers market, it does not mean that they're going to buy it when it's sitting on Safeway shelf, right? So, um, so I just be wary of that. Though, of course, if somebody if you're getting a lot of negative reactions at a farmers market, then you know it's really not going to work. Mm -hmm. um, my, our unique thing was that, like, I actually tested the ketchup and the different ketchup recipes on my kids because the kids and our cousin, their cousins and friends and stuff like that. Because um, I realized with something like ketchup, uh, number one, kids are the best test group for anything, especially like five-year-olds because they never lie to you. <laughs> they, <Right. laughs> they can't be. They they will be the most honest about what they like and don't like or that they're eating <laughs> than anybody else out there. Um, so they're a great test market. And for something like ketchup, they are the core market, right? So that's what I was doing this for. So if my kids weren't eating the ketchup or were like hesitant to eat the ketchup or we had to co coerce them to eat it or trick them, then I knew it wouldn't work, right? So I like to say our ketchup has been uh, heavily tested on five-year-olds. Yeah. So. yeah, excellent. Uh, how do you think about pricing this product? Uh, what, what's sort of your strategy for that and what type of thinking went into that? Yeah, we started, or that's one of the one things that kind of got right, I think. I'd like to say, think that I got it right early on, and uh, one of the few things I got right early on and then was able to maintain. Um, with the difficult thing with food, with food pricing uh, is you got to back out um, from the retail shelf. So um, the price that you see on the retail shelf for any given product is not the price that I am getting as a company or even close to it. Like, uh, that, that price has both a distributor broker and a, the grocery store's margin worked into it. Um, so what you have to do is figure out the economics and the value chain of your business. And so whether you're selling online or in a grocery store, because uh, online you're going to have to deal with Amazon's fees and surcharges and things like that. So, um, and shipping problems, shipping costs and extra packaging. Um, and on the grocery store shelf, you know, the, the grocery store is making at least, um, usually about 40 cent, 40% gross margin on every product that's in the center store and, uh, in the, on the main shelves. And then the distributor is probably making anywhere from 25 to 35% gross margin, um, as well. And so that's, if you back those two things out, then that's the price that you're selling to your distributor. Now, figuring, and then you got to figure out whether or not the distributor is picking up from you or you're shipping to the distributor, because then that changes the equation a little bit. And then you got to calculate into the fact that, you know, you're, if you're going to have a broker, that's a 5% commission that you're going to be paying to the broker. 
And then also you're going to be on sale almost, uh, you know, at least, you know, 16 weeks, 12 weeks out of the year. And you got to calculate that those sales in as well, because when you see products on sale in store, that's not the grocery store putting them on sale. That's the that's the products that's us putting the things on sale. So I'm passing that through. Yeah. So there's a lot of different elements to that. And uh, yeah. I think what I heard you start off with was you, you got to figure out what you can sell it for on the shelf and then work your way back from there. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. You got to work it back and to see if it'll work there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, what we realized is, that, you know, there is I thought that the max we could when we started out with a glass, all glass bottle products initially, um, you know, now we have our ketchups and squeeze bottles. But like within all glass bottle products, I thought the max we could sell at was probably five ninety nine. Before people really, you get a, uh, and you know, I was just feeling it out, looking really looking at the price sets, things like that, where people are going to be price price sensitive um, uh, for a bottle of ketchup or barbecue sauce, and uh, you know, just seeing what the other high end stuff went for, how, how much it was per ounce, and. You know, the per ounce calculations really aren't always that important because a lot of people will look at just kind of the general size of something and the general price. Um, <clears throat> so I learned this from coffee, too, which was that, you know, a, uh, a half pound bag and a 12 ounce bag pretty much look the same. So, uh, so a, or a full pound bag, which is 16 ounces and a, and a 12 ounce bag and even an eight ounce bag, like a half pound bag, almost look the same on the shelf. Right. They can they can make it so the bag takes up the same amount of space and people will. So you can sell a, a eight ounce or 12 ounce bag for the same price as a full pound 16 ounce bag because um, people aren't doing that calculation. They're like just looking quickly to see that, you know, how big it is um, generally. So vast majority of people aren't calculating price per ounce or price per pound it's like this. So you got to kind of figure out, you know, what where people start to balk, you know. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. So, uh, Abe, as you reflect back on on the years that you've been at this now since you started, uh, and what what's sort of the biggest surprises that that you've encountered? Things that like totally didn't expect. Oh man, that's a good question. Um, the one, I mean, the one big thing that I really didn't I didn't calculate for. Um, and this was a huge thing on me was I really didn't understand the velocities of the category. Um, ketchup and barbecue sauce, maybe two of the worst things that you can get into as a food startup because it's not a quick consumable product. People put it in their fridge and they don't, you know, they don't buy a new one for, right. for months at a time. It right. It doesn't go bad. <clears throat> right. Yeah. And it just sits there. Um, you know, the average, uh, Family and the average household in America buys three bottles of ketchup a year. Um, so terrible velocity product. Um, so that means you have to reach to same, reach the same amount of sales. You have to have a higher, wider audience. Uh, when I first started on this, I looked at okay, well, ketchup is a big, ubiquitous audience. It's not a niche a niche market. Um, we're we're trying. We're not really making a niche product. We're making a great tasting product that's just healthier. So it should not be a niche product. Um, and it's not that much more expensive. Um, and 94% of American households have ketchup in them. And, you know, another like 60% have barbecue sauce in their fridge at any given time. But you don't realize, I mean, there are a lot of those households, you know, empty nesters, um, sing, young singles, things like this. They, their, their bottle of ketchup has been there for two years, right? So, <laughs> right. Um, 
So not understanding that velocity um, calculation was was a real shock because that really um, took apart a lot of my financial projections early on in the first two years when I was like, crap, we are not hitting our numbers and we're not hitting our numbers. Well, we weren't hitting our numbers for a lot of reasons, but the, uh, you know, one of the things that really hurt when you're doing, when you're doing a food startup is like, you know, the, the velocities that you expect were not coming through, mm. uh, you know, how fast you're selling off shelf, uh, and how much harder that is in my category to get there. So, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, if you reflect back again, uh, what was sort of, the the best decision or the big, you know, the greatest amount of luck that you had during this journey? Good question. Um, I think the, the best decision we had was, um, when we pushed and launched a no sugar ketchup, um, it's definitely our best product by far. We have brand new, we started with a low sugar ketchup that we had, um, average ketchup is four grams of sugar per serving. Um, the one we launched had initially was two grams of sugar per serving. Uh, so I thought, you know, 50% less sugar, that's a really good argument. That's a great, you know, way to start. It's, uh, there wasn't much else. Nobody else was doing really a low sugar ketchup at the time. So I thought, <clears throat> you know, we had a real advantage and we had the veggies in it too on top of it. Um, so, uh, but getting the no sugar ketchup and launching it when we did was, was key. Um, cause really we launched the no sugar ketchup right when everybody was going to no sugar and a bunch of other new products came out that were no sugar ketchups as well. None of them are as good as ours. Um, most of them have artificial sweeteners in them, like sucralose, which are terrible for you. Um, but <clears throat> these were this is what we were uh, looking at and really wanted. Uh, so I got really lucky that we got that that no sugar ketchup to work. And I honestly think our, our and a lot of people told me that the no sugar ketchup even tastes better than our low sugar ketchup, mm -hmm. which is something I, I never thought was going to be possible. Um, so as when we first started, I was really, I always wanted to get to the no sugar, but I was really worried about how we were going to get there and maintain that great flavor. Um, so that was really lucky that we figured out a way to make that work. Kind of just kind of fell in place. Um, you know, getting that product out. And recently, like in this past year in September, Heinz actually copied our low sugar product. They launched a veggie ketchup made with carrots and butternut squash, which is a two of our main vegetables that we add on top of the tomatoes. Um, it's, it's almost, it's different. It's a different recipe. You can tell from the ingredients, but it's almost exactly the same and they're marketing it almost exactly the same as ours. Um, but we were lucky, you know, cause we'd already had this no sugar ketchup, which is a better product already on the market. Yeah. So, which had the same, the same veggies in it. Yeah. Like I, I guess, uh, for the most part in sort of the food industry, uh, it's really difficult, difficult to kind of protect your brand, right? It's it, people can the large guys huh. can kind of come in and, and try to copy you. You can't patent a recipe. Yeah. You can't. Um, you can get a trademark on your logo and your name and things like that. But even that is very difficult. Like there's, you know, people can make very, I know some startups that were out there and some a bigger company like starts making very similar looking products to theirs, but just different enough that, you know, it's not enforceable from a patent or a trademark standpoint. And so they end up, you know, stealing sales like off the shelves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very difficult. That's why you need to stay, <clears throat> you got to stay flexible, nimble and, um, stay ahead on innovation. Like, so we're constantly looking at like how we can improve our recipes and what's the new next product that we're going to be launching out, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So we're uh, coming up on uh, 40 minutes here and I want to be respectful of your time, Abe. So one last question. 
Mm-hmm. So for the entrepreneurs who are out there listening or the, or the wannabe entrepreneurs who are out there listening to this podcast, uh, what would be sort of your top lessons learned or top tips that you would want to give folks? Um, number one is really, uh, if you're going to sell a, a product or anything like that, I mean, test it out online first, test it on Amazon, uh, test it through your website, uh, realize that Amazon is not an organic discovery platform. Um, you're going to have to spend money to get people to try to find it and buy it. If you look at the amount of products that are on Amazon, um, but it's a great way then to test out to see, you know, what your customer cost of acquisition is, things like this, and uh, what keywords resonate with the customers who are making the purchases. Um, so that's one thing I would definitely do differently. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, if you want to raise money and you want to be a that kind of business, I would definitely look at uh, take your time before you actually go out to raise money. Um, and try to figure out, figure out a way to put off raising money as long as possible. Um, the longer you can put off raising money, um, the better chance you have of actually raising it. So, yeah, excellent. Excellent advice, Abe. Hey, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, you were a great guest, a lot of really good information. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. No problem. I hope it was helpful. I hope I can help somebody out there. So yeah, I'm sure it will. Thank you, Abe. No problem, man. Have a great one. So, Bela, this is a great interview. I learned a ton about the food business from this. Who thought ketchup would be so interesting? Um, and, and his whole story was really interesting. I love the foundations of his recognition of a market opportunity, right? We teach market opportunity to students all the time. Um, and something that we kind of take for granted, condiments. And he intuitively understood trends, right? That People's food consumption habits are changing, that people want healthy alternatives. He was seeing the eyes through a parent, being a parent, right, and saying, oh, my gosh, there's a ton of added sugar in this stuff, and I don't want to give my kids this. I mean, it was great. And he saw this, and he saw the trends at the right time, um, and he's found a small but important way to make a difference through, you know, really an innovative product. Um, what was your sense? Was this a, a, a traditional way to go about finding an opportunity or did this just fall in his lap or what's your sense about how this idea came to him? So I, th- I think there's three important elements to this. Um, one is, uh, and they all revolve around opportunity recognition. Um, you know, the one that struck me was when he said, there's a lot of sugar in ketchup. And I said, really? I didn't know that. And then sure enough, you read the label and you go, oh my gosh, there is a lot of sugar in here. So, you know, so part of that is, is that was to me was the aha moment. Oh, wow. Really? I just thought ketchup was this benign thing and everybody eats it and kids love it. And I never gave it two thoughts. It's not even sugar. It's not even sugar. It's high fructose corn syrup. Exactly. Excellent point. So it's, it's worse than sugar, as they say, I believe. We're going to get calls from Heinz. You know that. We're going to get calls. We're going to get nasty emails, cease and desist. Well, it's all over now. Maybe they'll decide to sponsor us. Ooh, I like that. Try to buy the buy their way buy buy our love. Yeah. Uh, well, no, our love's not for sale. Ah, we're we're not exactly. <laughs> but maybe they'll buy Abe's company and uh, come out with a low sugar alternative. But anyway, they did, no, they did. Remember, they told. Remember, he said mm. that they imitated. Yeah. 
They're not going to buy them. They're going to rip them yeah. off. Yeah. Well, that's that's. I'm really getting us in trouble now. Now it's slander. Now, now let's let's. We're going to have to call Rich Honan. It's a good thing we've got a sponsor for an attorney because I'm going to need him. Yeah. We might need to head this whole thing out. We might. Good thing you're in Germany. <laughs> Clearly, uh, beyond the long re- arm of the law. Yeah. But let's save that idea of being ripped off by your competitors, right? Because there's certain markets that's yes. hard to protect. Uh, we'll, we'll save that for another minute or two following this. But I think there's some important point here. One is this notion that, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that ketchup had all this bad stuff in it for you. I thought it was like one of the basic food groups that was good for you. Uh, and then his notion that understanding that the trend is, the trend is going in a way such that sugar is becoming uh, – less and less good for you than maybe it was thought so in the past and particularly high fructose stuff. Um, so he's jumping on that trend and this notion that, uh, parents are really concerned about this, right? So, um, as people become parents, they become very concerned about the health of their children, uh, sometimes their own health as well. And, uh, so they're paying attention to all this stuff. So that's the market he's going after. So I thought those three pieces were really important recognition items. Um, that anyone can use to try to figure out the trends and figure out how they can sort of elbow their way into this very competitive, very crowded market uh, with a distinctive product uh, that's going to have attractiveness to a segment of the market population. Yeah, yet it took them three years. And this three-year runway was kind of interesting for what seems like an obviously good idea. Um, He really had to have a lot of persistence with this. What's your experience, Bella, with the amount of time it takes to make a successful product launch? And then how do you know that you should push forward or throw in the towel? I mean, I probably would have given up after two and a half years, right? Well, you know, businesses, uh, you never know. Sometimes you're early, sometimes you're late. Sometimes you don't uh, have the recipe exactly right uh, to get people to buy it. Um, so I think persistence is a real imper- important virtue that entrepreneurs have. And knowing when to give up, I don't know how to answer that question, Mike. I don't have a clue, right? Different people just sort of decide at different points in time. Um, I, I just watched this movie uh, called Free Solo. It's about a guy who climbed Yosemite uh, Half Dome uh, by himself with no ropes, with no safety. He just free climbed it. And the important, the the thing that I took away from that is this person had planned this for like five years, right? He had climbed that mountain. He knew it like the back of his hand. He knew every little nook and cranny. And, and so that was for him, it was really important. Um, so I think if it's important for you, uh, and you're really driven, then fundamentally you never stop. And, and there's been plenty of examples of things that people have been at for 10 years, and it took them 10 years to, to do it into a success. So I, I don't really have any sort of insight to being able to say, you know, you, you, you put a fuse on it, and after so, such a period of time, it's, it's time to fold up the tent. I think you go as long as you're driven, as long as you're excited, and as long as you're interesting, and, and you keep pushing at it. And I think he was getting good guidance from people. Like he, it really impressed me how he used the accelerator, how he used peer kind of advisory groups, how he worked the trade shows, right? So he really leveraged the network of entrepreneurs in his geographic region in in, in DC uh, and in his industry. And and I think that really helped. So I'm sure he was getting some signals from people all the way 
uh, along the way about whether he should keep going or 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 throw in the towel. Um, what's your take on the pros and cons of working with an accelerator, and how should entrepreneurs explore accelerators? What questions should they be asking? Well, Mike, you bring up a great point. A lot of people think about entrepreneurship as a solo endeavor, and it's really not. Uh, it's it's as you said incubators, mentors, uh, people in the industry, uh, you have to be really engaged with all of those various different folks uh, to help make you smarter and to help make so that you make better decisions. So I think uh, incubators, accelerators are places where you can congregate with folks who have similar interest, maybe not necessarily the same industry as you, but similar interest as you. They're struggling with the same things. Uh, some of them will be a little further along. Some of them will be a little further behind. Uh, and your ability to get together and have conversations and discussions, I think, is really, really important. So, um, you know, I ran an incubator for a number of years at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, and I think one of the things you look for in an incubator is sort of you want it to be non-homogeneous, what I mean by that is you want a wide variety of companies at different stages, and I think you want companies from different industries and different disciplines so that you can have this sort of interaction. Um, I think that's really important. I think you also want to look for um, various different uh, doors that they can open for you, whether to be with to good attorneys like uh, Phillips Lytle. Uh, that's where I met. Rich Honan, uh, back when I was running the incubator, they used to come once a week and open up a, a, a law office, uh, if you will, uh, that uh, companies could use, uh, get some free legal advice. Uh, you want to look for those types of outreach programs that will help engage you with the professional services community that you're going to need. Uh, and uh, you want, of course, access to investors, angels, and you want someone there who's really smart. <coughs> And you want someone there who's really smart and has been down the road a few times who can uh, mentor you and give you advice and coach you along the way. Yeah, this is I think this is just a textbook example of the right ways to use incubators and to and to use this as a uh, a way to get smarter uh, in a hurry because he did. He had a lot to learn. He didn't have a background in in packaged foods and it's a tough business. Uh, you have to know how to work with the grocery stores. You have to know how to work with the buyers. He did a really describe that whole process really well. I loved how he talked about how he uses Amazon. That's not his preferred distribution channel necessarily, but it's a great way to learn about how to position your product and what consumer interest is. And for an entrepreneur, thinking about Amazon, not necessarily as a distribution channel, but as a in market intelligence tool, uh, to me right. was a real eye opener, you know. It's a great um, laboratory. I've, yeah, I've seen it uh, kind of written about in a couple different ways, and I've talked to a few people, but he put it so clearly it was great. Um, let's yeah. go back to this idea of imitation because we started down that path and, and, and we pushed it forward a little bit. What happens when a major competitor imitates your product? And I've seen a lot of examples of entrepreneurs that this happens, right? They're, they have a good idea and it, it, it makes a dent in the market. Um, not a big dent, but the big company sees it, imitates it, says, ah, I'm going to do this, change it just enough so there's no IP issues, um, intellectual property issues. We're not infringing on trademarks or patents or anything, but we're going to put out something similar. 
Um, and in these cases, a lot of times the entrepreneurs fail because they don't have a second iteration ready to out-innovate the imitation, essentially, to stay a step ahead, to take advantage of being nimble and small. Um, uh, how do you see this, and what advice do you give entrepreneurs, Bela, when they come to you and say, hey, I'm in deep trouble here because the, 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 the big competitor just, just copied me? So first of all, it's going to happen. You're going to have competition, whether it be from a big guy or from another small guy or a medium-sized guy. It's going to happen, regardless of what you're doing. If you're successful, it's going to happen. Um, so you got to be prepared for that. How do you prepare for that? Well, I think you, you have to think about product innovation. You have to think about building your brand really strong and giving it some distinctive features. And, and no, notice I didn't say unique features. This is not where unique is important. It's where being distinctive is important. Distinctive means you have some things that people, in my mind, distinctive means you have things that people value and that you really hammer those home, and that's what you, you become known for. And I think Abe has done this uh, and is doing this, and I, I think if things go well, he'll be able to survive this. He's going to have an onslaught from other folks doing it. I mean, it happens all the time. You see it when big companies come out with a new innovative product. Uh, it's, it's six months, nine months later. Their competition has their version of it. Uh, so it's going to happen. And this is where building your brand, being connected to your customers so that they have brand loyalty. So I think understanding how to build your customer base and how to maintain your customer base uh, and make your customers feel that they are part of a family and a community and not just that they're buying some product off of a shelf. I think those are those are really important elements. Um, what do you think, Mike? Yeah, no, good advice. I think uh, community is key, right? Where you you feel like, okay, I I um, I appreciate these people. A good example, if you're into shoes at all, is Allbirds, and Allbirds kind of swept through California several years ago. It was the shoe of choice of VCs, and it's a shoe that's made um, with an eye on sustainability. Uh, it's made from uh, New Zealand wool. And they now have an innovative soul that's, um, I guess, completely made of natural products and is, is um, completely recyclable. So they're designed to have a very low carbon footprint. Um, and just before the holiday season, Amazon imitated them. And the founders of Allbirds really reached out and said, hey, we realize that Amazon is offering a similar product, but you know, believe in what our mission is and believe in how we're growing. They came out with a shoe that was a lightweight shoe. They came out with one that was rain resistant, uh, things like this. And they're trying to keep innovating, but they really made a direct appeal to their customers to really believe in their mission and their vision and what they were trying to do and to not buy the knockoffs. Um, so yeah, so I think that, that there's no easy answer, uh, but I think continuous innovation, I think you know, building that community and that brand so that people will choose you, um, not because of price, but because of what you deliver and that you deliver on it consistently and they want to be a part of, of what you're doing. I think that's great. And in a B2C market, that's easy to do. It's harder in a B2B market. It's harder in some way in services. So I agree with you. There's no magic formula, but I think we can look to some of these companies that have withstood um, some competition um, to, uh, for clues uh, as to what might work. And I think there's no one right answer for any business, but you got to do something. I think doing nothing and just hoping that it, it, you'll be fine is, the, is probably not <laughs> the right result. Um, yeah. So I think you have to take some action, but figuring out what's going to work in your situation is critical. Yeah. And I think as a small company, 
you should be able to innovate at a much faster rate than any large company can. I mean, that's I sort that's of well understood, right? So you can yeah. innovate. You can come out with new products much faster than Amazon can, number one. So that's to your advantage. And number two, as you said, it's not just about the products. It's about the community and, the, and what your company stands for and how people identify with it. So yep. that's really important as well. Yeah. Cool. Well, what do you think? Should we wrap this up? Sure. Sounds good to me. Okay. So, listeners, we're happy that you joined us once again in a podcasting adventure this week. Uh, and we hope you found uh, the last 40 minutes or so with Abe Kmark uh, to be an interesting and thought-provoking discussion of ketchup, barbecue sauce, and all things healthy uh, in the world of, of packaged food. Um, as usual, we have a couple of small requests. One is if you have questions about what we uh, discussed uh, today or if you have suggestions about future topics or guests, please uh, drop us an email. Uh, our address is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And second, if you like what we're doing, uh, please hit like or subscribe or the little heart or the thumbs up or whatever your podcast app uses. Uh, and if you really want to help us out, a short review would be fantastic. Um, and of course, if you know others that might find us interesting, please share us with them. Yeah, so uh, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, we look forward to you uh, joining us for our next episode. Signing off from upstate New York. Hey, Mike, see you next week. Sounds great, Bela. That's it from this week over here in Münster, Germany. I hope your cough gets better. I'll send you some schnapps. You know, a little bit of this good German pear brandy will really uh, cure what ails <laughs> you, I think. But have a great week. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>